You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lifelong drifter and frequent nonviolent criminal, Clarence Earl Gideon was charged with breaking and entering with the intent to commit a misdemeanor, which is a felony, in Florida in 1961. At trial, he asked the court to appoint him a lawyer because he couldn't afford one. The trial judge refused, saying Florida law only called for court-appointed counsel for capital offenses. At trial, Gideon represented himself, and he didn't do half bad for a man who'd only completed the eighth grade, making an opening statement, cross-examining witnesses, and presenting his own witnesses. Despite his best efforts, though, The jury found Gideon guilty, and he was sentenced to five years in prison. And that's when Gideon's fight really started. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into... Unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you know the case of Gideon V. Wainwright, you have a sense of what we're talking about today. People who have taught themselves the law and prevailed in a battle so slanted, it's basically straight up and down. And there are a lot of people fighting that fight from inside a prison cell. In New York, the Kings County District Attorney's Office released a report examining how and why the Special Convictions Review Unit in Brooklyn exonerated 25 wrongly convicted people in the five years between 2014 and 2019. Prior to being wrongly convicted, These 25 persons had served an eye-watering 426 years in prison. To the sad surprise of no one, 24 of the 25 were Black and or Latino. Those 24 served an average of over 17 years in prison. The one white exoneree had served no prison time. The report forthrightly addressed the grievous errors including cases of deliberate misconduct by both police and prosecutors. Prosecutorial misconduct was cited in 84% of the 25 cases. Police misconduct, 72%. Failure by prosecutor or police to disclose favorable evidence to the defense, taken as its own separate stat, 40%. False or unreliable confessions, which were often the only direct evidence, 36% and good old-fashioned eyewitness misidentification was a contributing factor in the wrongful convictions of 20%. And it gets a bit worse, I'm afraid. There's one important rule of statistical analysis that we need to confront. Retrospective investigations of official misconduct will always come in under the true count. And I'm not the only one who thinks that a convict-turned-lawyer makes for a fascinating story. Apparently, rapper 50 Cent agrees, since he produced a TV series based on one such story. The show For Life is two seasons in, though I only just learned about it researching this. We don't, you know, have TV anymore, you know. 
We've got Netflix and Hulu, which I signed up for after I exhausted all the forensic files on Netflix. Anyway, For Life is based, sometimes loosely, on the real and fairly recent events in the life of Isaac Wright Jr. Wright's life was going okay for most of the 1980s. He worked as a music producer for The Cover Girls, a pop and urban contemporary musical group that featured his then-wife, Sunshine. The name was familiar, but I looked them up on YouTube and none of the songs rang any bells. Wright was arrested in 1989 in New Jersey for buying a kilo of cocaine from a co-defendant. In 91, he was convicted by a jury on 10 drug charges involving the sale of cocaine, and in 91, sentenced to life in prison under New Jersey's new drug kingpin laws. Wright had represented himself at trial, an inauspicious start to where you know this story is going. I had to go through a few sources before I could find out why he chose to do that, which Wright himself described as insane. I wasn't going to pay somebody to send me to prison. I might as well strap up the boots and put on the gloves and get into the fight myself. With an abundance of time on his hands, Wright studied law to appeal his conviction. Along the way, he became a paralegal and helped other men with their cases. And Wright was effective. He was able to get the sentences of over 20 others overturned or reduced, some of them from life sentences. He wasn't flailing blindly and getting lucky. Some of Wright's legal arguments actually influenced and continue to influence other practicing lawyers. In State v. Alexander, an appeal for a fellow prisoner, Wright developed a legal strategy to attack the kingpin instruction that was given to the jury, which he was then able to use to get his own kingpin conviction reversed. He was also able to get the drug evidence excluded for illegal search and seizure. Then-assistant Somerset County Prosecutor Gilbert Miller, appointed to oppose Wright's court actions, himself said, I found Mr. Wright to be highly intelligent and a better brief writer than most attorneys have encountered. I was most impressed with Mr. Wright's ability as a legal strategist. In addition to his legal prowess, there was a second leg to the overturning of Wright's conviction, and that was Somerset County Head Prosecutor Nicholas L. Bizzle, Jr. Of all the unlikely things Wright accomplished, one of the most remarkable was getting a confession of misconduct out of a veteran police officer. During a 1996 evidentiary hearing, Wright cross-examined Detective James Dugan and was able to convince Dugan to confess to what essentially amounted to a massive conspiracy to up as many people's lives as possible. Dugan was just the beginning of the unraveling of this itchy sweater of corruption. Dugan pled guilty to official misconduct in order to escape prison time himself. Judge Michael Ibriani, who oversaw the trial, was removed from the bench and later found himself in prison on theft charges. At the head of it all was Nicholas Bizzle. Bizzle directed police officers to falsify reports. He personally dictated the false testimony witnesses would give. He made secret deals with defense attorneys to have their clients testify that Wright was their drug boss. Imagine sitting in a courtroom, fighting for your freedom, and someone you've never laid eyes on before is telling the jury you're their boss. These witnesses also said that they had planned
pled guilty and were facing prison time, but none of them were ever in any real danger. Wright's case wasn't the only chicken that came home to roost for Bizzle. In 1990, one James Guffrey was arrested on cocaine charges. Bizzle agreed to drop the charges if Guffrey forfeited two plots of land, valued at $174,000, to the prosecutor's office. You see, Bizzle specialized in civil forfeiture. At one point, the value of the assets he seized were the highest in the state, even though Somerset County was the eighth smallest county in New Jersey. Guffrey's land was sold at auction, below its appraised value, to a friend of Bissell's chief of detectives. Guffrey filed a civil suit against Bissell and contacted both the FBI and the IRS, because if the G-men don't get you, the tax man will. Bissell was dirty dealing left, right, and center. IRS forensic accountants, and that is a job for those who are interested, found that Bissell skimmed cash from a gas station of which he was part owner, and the FBI discovered that Bissell had threatened to frame his gasoline wholesaler for cocaine possession. In September 1995, Bissell was indicted on 30 federal charges of mail fraud, tax evasion, and abuse of power, and was promptly fired. The following May, he was convicted on all charges and was facing 6 to 10 years in federal prison. He was released pending sentencing, less appropriate course of action in this reporter's eyes, under the condition that he wear an electronic monitoring bracelet. That fall, he cut the tracking bracelet off and fled to Nevada, though he was easily tracked by his cell phone. U.S. Marshals descended on Bizzle's hotel room, where Bizzle had no intention of being taken alive. After seven years in prison, Wright's charges were dismissed. The next seven years of his life were spent getting his law degree and an undergraduate. His law school, St. Thomas University School of Law, renamed its cafeteria after him. That is just as cool as the University of Colorado naming their dining hall after famed cannibal Alfred Packer, though for disparate reasons. Wright passed the New Jersey bar in 2008, but spent the next nine years having his character investigated by the bar committee before being granted admission to the bar in 2017, where he was officially sworn in as a licensed attorney. I went to law school for one reason and one reason only, to slay giants. And if the giant is big enough and the cause important enough, I'll do it for free, especially when it involves helping those who cannot help themselves. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, 
the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Shortly after midnight on January 4th, 1991, 26-year-old Nathaniel Cash was fatally shot at his apartment building. His girlfriend, Jewel Smith, had gone to the store, and when she got back, she found him dead. However, Smith changed her story and implicated 25-year-old Derek Hamilton in the shooting. She would later say that Detective Louis Scarcella told her that if she didn't accuse Hamilton, he'd charge her with the murder. Remember that name, Scarcella. It's going to come up again. That March, police arrested Hamilton two hours away in New Haven, Connecticut, at the hair salon he jointly owned with Alfonso White. At Hamilton's trial, Smith identified Hamilton as the gunman, spinning a tale of Hamilton shooting Cash and Cash chasing after Hamilton before collapsing. The defense had listed two alibi witnesses for Hamilton, but neither were called. What about Hamilton's business partner? According to Alfonso's wife, police in New Haven, for whom White had acted as an informant in the past, threatened to arrest him if either of them testified. That's especially bad because they had tangible proof that Hamilton was at a New Haven hotel at the time of the crime. On January 17, 1992, a jury convicted Hamilton of second-degree murder. Between the conviction and the sentencing, Smith recanted her testimony, and the defense learned for the first time about her first statement to police that she wasn't even present when Cash was shot. But their motion to vacate the conviction was denied, and Hamilton was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. The reality of Hamilton's situation set in pretty quickly, but he didn't take it lying down. He immediately began to avail himself of the prison library, reading every last law book they had, and taking a writing course to be able to express himself well when filing motions with the court. Over the next two decades, Hamilton filed a series of motions attempting to overturn his conviction, but all were denied. In 1994, he sought to vacate the conviction on the basis of an affidavit from a witness who said that two other men shot Cash. The judge said the witness was not credible and denied the motion. While that motion was pending, two more witnesses came forward and said Hamilton was at a party at that New Haven hotel, which was, ironically, a going-away party for someone who was going to prison. One of those witnesses would go on to become a decorated police officer in New Haven, but the judge refused to take their statement into account because they hadn't been on Hamilton's alibi witness list. In 1998, another hearing was held with testimony from an additional witness who said someone else shot Cash. 
that witness was also not believed. In 2009, in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling allowing witnesses to testify to actual innocence if they have not been previously allowed to testify, Hamilton filed a motion seeking a new hearing to allow the two witnesses from 1994. The prosecution opposed that motion as procedurally barred. The motion for a hearing to allow the witnesses to testify was denied. In December 2011, Hamilton was granted parole. He'd been eligible for it earlier, but wouldn't express remorse for a crime he hadn't committed. Earlier in 2011, Kings County District Attorney Charles Hines created the Conviction Integrity Unit and invited defense attorneys to present cases in which innocent defendants may have been convicted. One case they became aware of was that of David Ronta, who was convicted of murder based on an investigation by Detective Scarcella. The CIU's investigation found that one witness had been told to pick Ronta out of a lineup and that two prosecution witnesses, both felons, were allowed to leave jail, smoke crack, and patron sex workers in return for implicating Ronta. What the hell? Ronta's conviction was vacated. A few months later, the New York Times published an article accusing Scarcella of misconduct in many investigations, fabricating evidence, coercing witnesses, and concealing evidence of defendants' innocence. The article reported how one woman had somehow testified as an eyewitness in six separate murder cases. The reports prompted the Brooklyn Conviction Integrity Unit to begin to reinvestigate over 50 cases in which Scarcella was involved. In January 2014, the Appellate Division of the Kings County Supreme Court, in an unprecedented ruling, reversed the trial court in Hamilton's case. The appeals court eliminated a procedural burial to criminal appellate claims to allow an assertion of actual innocence to be heard. Hamilton's case was remanded to the Kings County Supreme Court for a hearing. In January 2015, Kings County DA Kenneth Thompson concluded, on the basis of the reinvestigation, that Hamilton was innocent. The reinvestigation showed that the medical evidence contradicted Smith's claim that Cash was shot in the chest and pursued his assailant. According to the ME, Cash was shot in the back, and the wound would have been instantly fatal. In addition, ballistics showed that more than one gun was used in the shooting. Hmm, more than one could be two, like the two men that multiple witnesses were willing to testify had killed Cash. On January 9, 2015, the motion to vacate Hamilton's conviction was granted and the charge was dismissed. Hamilton subsequently filed a claim for compensation with the New York Court of Claims and filed a federal rights lawsuit seeking damages for his wrongful conviction. All of his cases were settled. By July 2018, 14 convictions based on Scarcella's detective work have been overturned of the 70-plus cases that were under review. Scarcella has consistently maintained he did nothing wrong. One of those people whose convictions was overturned has an extra connection to Hamilton. Shabaka Shakur was serving time in the same prison sent there by the same detective. Shortly after 10 p.m. on January 1, 1988, 
two men were shot and killed outside the Brooklyn building where they sold drugs. Police brought in 23-year-old Shakur for questioning after a witness said he had beef with the victims over a debt. Shakur said that he was in Queens with his girlfriend at the time. However, Detective Scarcella claimed he interviewed Shakur and Shakur confessed that he killed the two men before they could kill him. But Scarcella had no notes from during the interrogation, only the report that he typed up afterward. Another witness claimed that he heard Shakur admit to the crime, but he was never called to testify at the trial, and later recanted, saying he was trying to get leniency on his own charges. At Shakur's trial, the brother of one victim testified that he saw Shakur chase the victim, but admitted on cross-examination he had told the police he didn't actually witness the shooting, making him not actually much of a witness. A gun found in a trash can near the scene was linked to the murders, but there were no prints on the gun, and it could not be linked to Shakur. Shakur's girlfriend and her best friend testified that Shakur was at the girlfriend's home from 9 p.m. until he left for work the next morning. Nonetheless, the jury convicted Shakur of two counts of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. Shakur's case was one of those examined by the Brooklyn District Attorney's Conviction Review Unit, who agreed that the conviction was correct and Shakur was guilty. But later that year, 2014, defense attorney Ron Kuby presented evidence that Scarcella had fabricated the confession at a series of hearings on Shakur's motion for a new trial. On June 2, 2015, New York Supreme Court Justice Desmond Green granted the motion for a new trial and vacated Shakur's conviction. Green ruled that there was a reasonable probability that the alleged confession of Shakur was indeed fabricated. The judge said that Scarcella's version of obtaining the confession was particularly troubling and caused serious doubt. The judge also said he believed the testimony of Shakur's alibi witnesses. The district attorney declined to retry him. What was that extra connection with Hamilton that I hinted about at the top? Well, one of the many challenges that both men and many people face when getting out of prison is finding work. So they used part of their settlements to open a restaurant right across the corner from a police precinct. Who likes pop culture? Show of hands? Okay, pretty much everybody. And keep your hand up if you started a side business, second business, side hustle, what have you, during this past year. Okay, that's still a lot of people. And I thought there'd be, which is why I'm glad to tell you about the sponsor for today's show, the podcast Too Legitimate to Quit. The podcast that gives you actionable small business strategies from a pop culture point of view. Now, you wouldn't necessarily think that you could get business advice from sources like Schitt's Creek, Ren and Stimpy, The Green Lantern, or Megan the Stallion, but they really do have a lot to teach us. So join host Annie Ruggles as she and her guest decode the marketing, mindset, sales, and success hacks hidden within our favorite movies, TV shows, books, and more. Look up Too Legitimate to Quit on your podcast listening app. Not every legal autodidact is fighting for their freedom. Some fight for their way of life and the health and safety of themselves and their neighbors. 
And of course, there are many more stories in the world than just American ones. For Wang Enlin of Yushitun, China, working as a farmer was a foregone conclusion. It was not only what his family had done down through the generations, but since Wang had left school at age 10 to help his family in the fields, he didn't have enough education for most other jobs. It wasn't that Wang wasn't interested in education, and in fact, he continued to read avidly in what spare time he had. Becoming a farmer, while probably inevitable, didn't mean that Wang was not a man with drive either. Farming life is hard enough, but for Wang's family and neighbors, it started getting noticeably harder about 20 years ago. Their yields were steadily diminishing because their land was being contaminated by the nearby Qihua Chemical Group, a company with assets exceeding $300 million and the backing of the Chinese government. On the eve of the Lunar New Year in 2001, Wang was with his neighbors preparing for the big holiday when the house they were in began flooding. This wasn't an overflowing river, it was wastewater from Qihua, which also flooded the farmland, rendering it completely unusable. The dumping wasn't exactly a secret, but Qihua Chemical continued with impunity for more than five years because, as Wang would later say, Behind every case of pollution is a case of corruption. Many people would have abandoned their farms if they could, but Wang wasn't going to let this multi-million dollar company continue to dump upwards of 20,000 tons of chemical waste every year. Qihua Chemical had also reportedly created a 71-acre wasteland with calcium carbide residue and a 478-acre pond of liquid waste. Hiring a lawyer was out of the question for the peasant farmers, so Wang, with his third-grade education, decided he would just have to do it himself. He wrote a letter to the Land Resources Bureau of his province, but they demanded concrete evidence proving the plant had dumped the waste and it was the waste that had damaged their land, and that the land was actually damaged. The whole scenario is like a more lopsided version of Aaron Brockovich, where the chemical company is more flagrant in its malfeasance and the injured locals don't have a law firm helping them out. They had one of their own, who couldn't afford to buy the books he needed on the law. Instead, Wang made a deal with a local bookstore, where the shop owner let him read as much as he needed to in the store in exchange for bags of corn. Sources don't mention if it was corn grown on the contaminated land or not. Some of the books he needed were in other languages, so Wang had to translate them with a dictionary. I hardly need to tell you this was not a fast process. As subsistence farming became harder and people, including Wang, got sicker, free time was a precious resource. But what time Wang had, he spent studying. Also, sometimes the local police would show up and try to intimidate him. You know, that old chestnut. And so it went for 16 years. Things got a boost when Wang was able to find a Chinese law firm that specialized in fighting pollution-related cases. They didn't take on the case, but they did provide him with some free legal advice and helped him file his petition to the court. That was in 2007, six years into the poisoning of the land. According to prominent environmentalist Ma Jun, While the litigation process has been streamlined in recent years, 
Pollution lawsuits can still take years to be heard, partly because local governments give some degree of protection to polluting companies. The petition wasn't processed until 2015, and then it took a further two years to be brought to a conclusion, adding up to 16 years since that Lunar New Year Eve when Wang played cards and made dumplings with his neighbors. That's 16 years of industrial waste dumping, but it's also 16 years worth of chances to gather evidence about the industrial waste dumping. Angangtun District Court ruled that the people of Yushutun Village should receive compensation amounting to 820,000 yuan, around $125,000 or 104,000 euros. Unfortunately, the case was overturned on appeal, and world media seems to have lost interest in covering the case, as so often happens. But I doubt that Wang and his self-styled Senior Citizen Environmental Protection Team would give up that easily. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Gideon studied the law in prison and began to appeal his case, starting with a petition for writ of habeas corpus in Florida Supreme Court. His primary argument was that the trial judge's refusal to appoint counsel violated his constitutional rights. The Florida Supreme Court denied Gideon's petition. Gideon next filed a handwritten petition with the Supreme Court of the United States. The High Court agreed with Gideon that the Sixth Amendment's guarantee of counsel is a fundamental right and not subject to state law otherwise. Gideon got a second trial with a lawyer and was acquitted by the jury in an hour. And thank you to our guest quote readers in order of appearance. CJ from the Been Through Some Sh** podcast. Chris Green, co-host of This Week Today on the Podfix Network. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.